There is an unseen hand to me that leads Welcome to the Unseen Hand Podcast, featuring the pulpit ministry of missionary evangelist Ronnie Brown. Listen in as Brother Ronnie shares the truth of the Bible and how God's unseen hand can lead and guide your life with each and every verse. This hand still leads me as I go. Would you take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter number 27? Exodus chapter number 27. I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed this series in the tabernacle. I think more than I thought I would. And, and it has been a tremendous blessing. Uh, the, reason, the reason that I thought I would not enjoy it myself is because I've heard so many great preachers preach it a whole lot better than I can. And so, but I have not to say that I'm some kind of preacher, but I've really, I've really enjoyed this study. And uh, it has been a blessing to my heart. Exodus chapter number 27. Let's all stand. And honor and reverence to God's word. We looked originally. We looked um, at the uh, at the tabernacle as a whole. We did a flyby, uh, uh, an overview of the whole thing. Then from there, we went to the court, that linen fence, all the way around the tabernacle. And then we went from there to the gate. I believe that was last last Sunday night. We looked at the gate of the tabernacle, that opening that led its way into the very presence and the economy of God. Well, tonight we're going to see that which was just on the other side of that veil. If you'll remember last week, is right at the end of the message, we were able to peek behind that veil or behind that gate and begin to make our way inside the tabernacle courtyard and we were immediately met with the altar. And that's where he left off. So Exodus 27, look at verse number 1. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad, and the altar be, uh, shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His, sharp, his horns shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes and his shovels and his basins and his flesh hooks and his fire pans. All the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make for an a gate, a grate of network of brass. And upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the ark beneath that the net may be even in the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it, as it, as it was showed thee in the mount, so they make it. So they make it. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I just simply will entitle this tonight, The Brazen Altar. The Brazen Altar. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I am so glad that you saw beyond my fault and saw my need, Father. God, you could have righteously and rightly Uh, just looked at my fault and closed the doors of salvation 
and closed the doors of fellowship with you and separated yourself for all eternity. But Father, you knew my need and my need was be to be reconnected with my God, my Creator. And so God, you made a way in which we can fellowship with you. You made a way in which we can pass beyond the, the, the line, the, the, the demarcation of your righteous, holy law. You made a way, a gate into your presence. And Father, we're going to follow that, that way tonight and it's going to lead us straight to the cross of Calvary. Father, help me. Aid me as I try to preach. Guard me from heresy. Guard me from uh, teaching uh, that is wrong and fallacy. But Father, reveal to us the truth of your word. God, I pray that you give us a, a beautiful panoramic view of your sacrificial offering of your son. God, we ask this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen and amen. I want you to imagine yourself tonight going into a doctor's office. All right, you've gone into a doctor's office. You have some sort of appointment where you have a wound on your arm. And you go into the doctor's office and you're running late. You quickly go to the desk and you sign in on the sheet and the time that you come in. From there, you don't really pay attention to the surroundings or the environment. You just go sit down in a chair. You pick up a Newsweek and you begin to read it. As you peer across that Newsweek, something catches you out of the corner of your eye. It's something white over in the corner of the room. And so you quickly look over there and... What it looks like from where you're sitting is a pile of bandages that are bloody sitting over in the corner. And you're aghast at it. Is that what that really is? And as you look down at the bandages on the floor, you begin to notice the floor. The floor itself is dusty and and smutty and, and it's got grime all over the floor. And, and you begin to look around you. And, and at that moment you realize that there's all kinds of dirtiness on the floor. You start to lay down your magazine on the table. And as you do, you look down at the table. And is that blood on that table? Little speckles and spots of blood on there. And listen, that would be, what would you do? If that were the case, that was your doctor's office, you'd make a beeline for that door. You'd get out of there as quick as you possibly could. You see, and what if, what if you were in that room and suddenly you hear a scream in the back of the room? The scream of someone in agonizing pain. And all of a sudden you catch a, a whiff of the burning of flesh. I'm telling you, that sounds more like a nightmare than it does an office visit at a doctor's office. Well, that may not be the best type of office for the physical realm, but I want you to understand this, that the physical realm is different than the spiritual realm. That's people's problem these days. They think that the spiritual realm and the physical realm is the same. I don't know where it came from while Miss Linda was, uh, was singing. I was thinking about that topic, how that so many people compare the physical world and the spiritual world is the same. In the physical world, yes, hard work does make a difference. Hard work brings success. Every one of you children, listen to me very closely. You ought to have the endeavor in your life that you're going to work hard and make achievements and success in your life 
But spiritually speaking, success does not come from good works. It's just the opposite. It is the grace of God that brings success. It is salvation and dependence upon a holy God and not independence upon ourselves. The physical realm and the spiritual realm is different. So even though that doctor's office in the physical realm may not be curative for your physical ailments, it may well be the best bet in town for healing in the spiritual realm. Other, uh, listen, uh, 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 there, uh, there are plenty of religions and plenty of sects of Christianity today that will offer a sanitized version of religion. A sanitized, bloodless a crossless religion of self-assurance and self-confidence and self-motivations. Their offices may be comfortable and they may be clean, but their treatments are ineffective when it comes to the spiritual realm. The scene that I've described is exactly what we have at the brazen altar. Yes, it's a brutal place Yes, it's a bloody scene, yet it it describes the only scene where God and man can meet and have fellowship. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to make it clear that in the spiritual realm, everything doesn't come in a nice, clean, tidy package. You see, the problem is, is the curse. The problem is sin in our lives. Here in our text, we find the description of the brazen altar. We find that it was five cubits by five cubits by three cubits. Let me set that out in measurement for you. Remember, what else was five cubits? Why, it was that fence that went all the way around the tabernacle. That fence was, and we said that that fence was seven and a half feet tall. tall. So you can imagine the box. Now think about it. The box itself for the brazen altar was seven and a half feet wide and seven and a half feet long. It was not anything small. It was enormous. Seven and a half. Matter of fact, it was the largest of the, of the furniture in the tabernacle itself. Seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, and four and a half feet high. It was enormous. Some people speculate that every other piece of furniture in the whole tabernacle could be placed inside this altar. But it's described as being hollow. This is a hollow box without a bottom. Inside the box, about midway, was a grate. I I laid a, a photocopy of maybe a depiction of what is described here. I don't know how completely accurate it is, but it gives you an idea. There were horns on all four corners of this, uh, of this altar. There was a grate. You'd see that's kind of, it's not chicken wire, but it's something similar. It was a weaving of material that allowed things to fall through it, okay? But it was basically a hollow box. The whole thing was made of wood. Shittim wood. You remember we told about, talked to you about the shittim wood. How that the poles were made of shittim wood. This wood was very hard, durable desert wood. They'd find it out in, out in the Sinai Peninsula. And they would use that wood. But this wood, it wasn't by itself. 
You see, if you made that firebox of wood, if you tried to put a fire on it, what would happen? Well, the wood would burn up. So what they, God said to do was take the shittim wood and overlay it with bronze or brass, as the Bible calls it. And so it was a wood that was overlaid with brass or bronze. Now this would make the box basically a firebox. My dad has one in his uh, open air garage. It's a little box uh, that he can put all kinds of wood in and everything. It has a grate over the top of it. Very similar to what he's talking about. And he'll light a fire in, the, in his garage and it'll heat that little open air garage. That's basically what it was. A firebox at the front of the tabernacle situation. Now this would permit the box to have wood in it and burn sacrifice without being consumed itself. Exodus 29, I'm going to flip over there. You can, if you want to, I want to read you a passage out of here. Exodus 29, verse 42 through 43. Look at what it says here. Exodus 29, 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout all throughout your generation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you and speak there unto you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. This is where God, a holy God, met with sinful men. This is a place where God dealt with sin. Where does God meet with us today? You say, Brother Ronnie, we're old-fashioned around here. And praise God, if it's in the Bible, we need to have one. We need to make us an altar. We need to make start having sacrifices in that. We need to have us a big seven and a half foot by seven and a half foot by four and a half foot high altar. Where's our altar? Well, we have an altar. <laughs> we have an altar. And it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and His cross. Second Corinthians 5.21 For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Now I want to teach about this altar a little differently tonight. So what I want to do is I want to relate the ministry of this brazen altar in basically a story form. I want us to watch as a sinful man comes to meet a holy God at the altar. You remember our plane we've been riding on back to the Sinai? It's a magical plane that goes back in time thousands of years ago and lands where the, at the base of Sinai, uh, the Mount Sinai, and we step off the plank. And you remember how we've been looking at that tabernacle on the outside and we saw that gate. So pick up where we were last week. We were standing in front of that gate looking at that beautiful tapestry. All of a sudden we realize there's somebody coming up beside us. Somebody coming up beside us. We look at him and he looks very, very distraught. You see, first thing I want you to see in this story is I want you to see the apprehensive subject. As we approach the gate, we see a man that looks very much distraught as he approaches the gate. He looks as though something is bothering me. Slow in step, apprehensive as he approaches that tabernacle wall, that fence along the outside. I want you to see this apprehensive subject. I want you to see the reason he's apprehensive. He is apprehensive because of sin. He's apprehensive because of sin. It was not too long ago in, in this economy that, uh, that Moses came down 
from Mount Sinai and he had those two tablets of the Ten Commandments in his hand and when he came down from that Mount Sinai he found that all of the children of Israel were invested in such debauchery and sin. He was gone a mere 40 days and they'd already steeped themselves in idolatry and fornication at the base of that mountain. Moses' reaction was to take those Ten Commandments and to crush them on the rocks, representing how that man had broken God's law. But in reality, men cannot break God's law. They're unbreakable. They're written in stone and cannot be altered. Moses would go back not long after that and God would give him two brand new tablets. No, what is broken on the law is man himself. Man himself is broken on God's law. Sin shatters. Sin separates. It is, he, is, uh, he is apprehensive. This subject that we're watching is apprehensive because of the, because of the wages of sin is death. God demands just punishment on sin because God has said the guilty must surely be punished. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's why our subject is apprehensive as he comes to the gate. But notice second of all, not only do we see that he is apprehensive because of sin, but he's apprehensive because of sovereignty. Sovereignty. As this guilty sinner approaches the court, he sees that high white fence all the way around the court. The fence of separation. The fence that speaks of God's holiness and perfection. He is apprehensive, but uh, as as apprehensive as he is, this is his only choice. It may be fearful. He may be afraid. But this is his only place to come. Because truth be known, he can't hide. He can't hide in the camp. He can't hide among the tabra, among the, the people. He can't hide from an all-knowing God. He must come face to face with God and attempt to make amends with God. The only ease that our apprehensive subject has as he approaches that gate or as he approaches that fence, is the existence of the gate. And we talked about this last week. How that the gate says, there's a possibility. (laughs) There's a possibility that a sinful man can be made right with a holy God. God does not intend, God does intend to meet with man. God has made a way for sinners to be justified where they can be reconciled with the God that they have sinned against. The same is true with each and every one of us. You cannot run from God. You cannot hide from Him. Surely our sins will find us out. We must run to Him. We must meet Him. And the gate announces that there is a way. Remember what we said last week? Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. There is a way to be made right with God. The only hope that that apprehensive subject has is that there is a door that God intends to have fellowship with sinful man. Now, in the next stage, I want you to see not only the apprehensive subject, but I want you to see the atoning substitute. 
Now look what we see next. Look at Exodus 34 and verse number 20. Turn over a few pages. Exodus 34 and verse number 20. Exodus 34 and verse number 20. But the firstly of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou shalt redeem him not, then shalt thou break his neck. At the firstborn of thy sons thou shalt redeem. Listen to this. And none shall appear before me empty. None shall appear before me empty. If you will not have, if you will not, if you cannot bear the consequences of God's judgment upon sin, and none of us can, none of us want to go to hell, none of us want to be judged by God throughout all of eternity in the lake of fire. No, we cannot bear, then we must have a substitute. None of us can come to God empty handed. Notice, first of all, in this atoning substitute, I want you to see a substitute selected. Turn over to Leviticus chapter number 1. Exodus, Leviticus, the next book of the Bible, Leviticus chapter number 1 and verse number 1. Look at what the book of Leviticus says. Leviticus 1 and verse 1. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. And if this his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, and he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. There is a substitute that must be selected. Now there are very specific instructions for this substitutionary sacrifice. Now there were different sacrifices we could choose from. There were basically four. There was an ox or a bullock, which would mean a young ox, an ox calf. They could bring that ox calf and they could, they could slaughter it and use it for a sacrifice. They could bring a, a lamb, a lamb, a, a firstling, a lamb that was without spot and blue. They could bring it. They could bring a goat as well. Not much is mentioned about that, but a goat as well that you could bring to have its sacrifice. And finally, even as small as a dove, a pigeon. Smallest as a as small as a dove or pigeon. But each sacrifice had to be without spot and without blemish. You see, there would be these priests or attendants at that gate, and they would they would take that sacrifice. Our apprehensive subject has come, and he has a lamb with him. And those attendants of the of the tabernacle would come out and they would begin to inspect that lamb, and they would look at that lamb. They would look at its hind legs and its hoofs and its skin and its underbelly, and they'd make sure there was not a spot, not a blemish, not a mark on that animal whatsoever before that animal could be offered to Almighty God. I know I said it earlier, but Hebrews 13.10 states that we have an altar. We have a sacrifice. 
We have a substitution. And that, in Hebrews 13, goes on to state that that substitution is Jesus. What did John the Baptist say on the banks of the muddy Jordan River? Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. What did John the Beloved say in 1 John 3, 5? And you know that He was manifest to take away sin, and in Him is no sin. Jesus Himself said in John 8, 46, Which of you convinceth me of sin? Which of you could point to any one sin in my life? Judas the betrayer said in Matthew 27, 4, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate said in Luke 23, 4, I find no fault in this man. Luke 23, 47, the centurion said, Certainly this was a righteous man. Peter said that we are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as as a lamb without spot and without blemish. Christ is our substitute. You don't have to go all over North Georgia looking for a perfect ox. You don't have to go over all over North Georgia trying to find a spotless lamb. There is a sacrifice that is available, that has already been sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. He is the perfect kind for kind substitute. A substitute must be selected. Not only is a substitute selected, But a substitute was slain as our subject makes his way with his approved sacrifice beyond that gate. They've inspected it. They found it to be spotless, approved for sacrifice. That man would walk beyond that gate and would encounter that altar. That burning, flaming, blackened, smoky. uh, You you, you ever ever, uh, smelled the the smell of burning flesh or, or, or crispy. Smell that smell of meat that's been crispy burned to ash. That's what he smells when he comes beyond that veil and he meets that altar for the first time. Now, he comes upon a scene that is horrid of blood and gore and burning and death. Notice Leviticus chapter 1 in verse number 4. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Oh, listen, this is one of the most sublimely divine verses in all the Bible. God was willing. God God in His economy, God in His infinite wisdom knew that we could not withstand the price of sin. Knew that we could not bear the judgment. And so God made a way in which a substitute could be taken in our place. One could stand in our place. God was willing for the innocent animal to stand in the place of a guilty man. Look at verse number 5. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord. Notice that he there. He shall kill the bullock before the Lord. You see that man who's looked at that animal and seen, man, there's nothing wrong with this animal. He's spotless. It will make a good sacrifice. He picks up that animal and he takes it to that priest and that priest says, I agree. There is nothing wrong with this animal. There is no reason why we'd ever want to kill this animal. There's no reason why this animal has to die. And he has to go into that tabernacle and take his hand and put his hand on that and say to a holy God, I know I deserve to die. I know I deserve the judgment. I know I deserve not to live. But God, you said in your word that if I bring a substitute, he'll be acceptable. I can't take your judgment. And with his own very hand, takes the knife and slits the throat of that animal. And in tears watches that animal who did not deserve to die, who did not deserve anything to happen to him, drain his precious life's blood in that basin. 
Oh, that's the same is true with every to every lost person in this world. They must come to the point where they identify with Christ. Ye with wicked hands have slain, Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Everyone must identify that it was our sins that crucified Christ on the cross. I'm the guilty one, not this lamb. Leviticus chapter number 1, look at verse 5 at the latter part. And the priests... Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about the altar that is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall fillet the burnt offering and cut cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. And the priests, Aaron, uh, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts of the head, the parts the head and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar but its inwards and its legs shall be washed with water and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice and offering made by fire of a sweet smelling savor unto the Lord. When the blood was taken from that animal it was dissected. Then the wood was laid on the altar on that great Then the sacrifice was placed in specific order in there. Then it would be consumed by the fire. The sinful subject would watch. Would watch as that innocent lamb would be consumed in that fire. He would smell the flesh being burned and burned and burned and burned. And he and the priest would all stand back and watch as that lamb paid the price of sin on that altar. The flesh would be burned and charred and eventually turned to ash. On the cross, in the three hours of darkness, Jesus endured the suffering of all the fiery wrath of God and was burned and completely given out on the cross of Calvary. He consumed the wrath of God's hatred on sin and God's judgment upon sin on the cross of Calvary. Has there ever been a time when you come as a guilty sinner deserving of the judgment of God and you've placed your hands on the precious Lamb of God and says, I'll take you. I can't bear the judgment of sin on me. I can't bear eternity and torment in hell. I receive Jesus as my Savior. He'll take my place. I should have died. I should have suffered. But but God in His grace and mercy gave His own Son on the cross to die for me. Praise God. Praise God. He took my place on that cross. He took my place on the altar of God's wrath and fiery anger upon sin. Every one of my sins should have put me in the ninth realm at the bottom of hell with my back broke. But Jesus took my place. All to Jesus I owe. Oh, the precious atoning substitute, the Lord Jesus. The apprehensive subject, the atoning substitute. Now finally, I want you to see an acceptable sacrifice. Moment by moment, that once innocent lamb is consumed by the fire and eventually turned into ash. In doing so, so in doing so, smoke has risen to the heavens. The ashes fell down through that grate into all of the other ashes of all the other sacrifices. 
but the smoke ascended into the heavens. In this, I want you to see some things. First of all, I want you to see a satisfying sacrifice. A satisfying sacrifice. You realize what the word altar means? You know, immediately when we think altar, we think kneel. These right here, I don't think there's anything wrong with these being called altar, but instantly when you say altar, from, from my perspective, it means to kneel. But do you realize the word altar means to lift up? It means to lift up to God. These ashes and charred remains may fall to the ground, but the smoke wafts its way to God. Time and time again. Matter of fact, I looked it up. 43 times in the Old Testament alone is the phrase sweet savor connected with the burnt offering. Now listen, you ever been around a steak that got burned and charred real bad? Not that I have. Not that I have at all. I want to rephrase that. Have you ever been around a piece of food that's been burned, burned beyond recognition? Oh, the st- I mean, that stinks. Oh, son. That, that stinks to high heaven. But in the nostrils of God, this flesh that is completely consumed on this altar is nothing but a sweet-smelling Savior. Why does it smell so wonderful to the, to the God of heaven? The smoke lifting up to God is a statement that God's demands on sin have been satisfied. That man has met God on his terms. Man hasn't tried to make his own way. Man hasn't tried to make his own way to God. He has met God on his own terms. You see, listen to this. Ephesians 5.2. Listen to this statement the Apostle Paul makes in Ephesians. Ephesians 5.2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, although he was not literally burned on that cross, justice was served in the Lord Jesus. His blood and His body pierced and dying on that cross satisfied God's wrath upon sin. These sacrifices of the Old Testament economy merely could cover sin. It could not cleanse sin. Oh, but with the death of the Lord Jesus, God's just demand for the kind for kind substitute to take away sin is met. Listen to Isaiah 53. He, meaning God, shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Satisfied. That's why Jesus, at the very pinnacle of his sufferings in Calvary, said, To tell us that it is finished. God is satisfied. A kind for kind sacrifice. Not only a satisfying sacrifice, but I want you to see also a saving sacrifice. You see, there's two ways of looking at that smoke ascending unto heaven. From God's vantage point, it's satisfying. From man's, from man's vantage point, it is saving. <laughs> 
It is saving. Our apprehensive subject is now relieved. He now breathes a sigh of relief before Almighty God. This sacrifice has made him acceptable. The wrath uh, of God that was focused on him has now been poured out on another. And now he can continue on in fellowship with God. By this sacrifice, that apprehensive subject is saved. Spared. (laughs) He'll not encounter the wrath of God. He's been spared the judgment. It should have been his body filleted and placed on that altar. But now he can clap his hands. Thank you God that you accepted him and not me. Thank you God that you made a way that he could take my place and me not incur your wrath. Oh, that ought to be the joy of every Christian's heart that he took my place. I'm saved because I have been spared and He has been taken. Do you realize this brazen altar was the most used piece of furniture in the whole tabernacle? The, The most holy place, they went into it one time a year. The, the holy place that was that place beyond the veil where the candlestick and the showbread and the altar of incense was, that was only entered into twice a day. But business was done every hour, every moment, every day, day in and day out, evening and night, all around that seven and a half foot box by seven and a half foot box, constantly. What is that telling us? God tells us that the sacrifice of Jesus is still saving and still cleansing and still forgiving. That His sacrifice is always efficacious. We need not bring another. Jesus, that's why it is so important to realize that the Catholic Eucharist that is supposed to be a re-sacrificing of Jesus is none effect. It is blasphemy. He died once the just For the unjust that He might bring us to God. Our satisfaction and our sacrifice is complete in Him and only in Him. One offering and it is done for all eternity. You see, you think about that uh, that, uh, grate there. How those ashes, how those ashes fell down through that grate and down to the bottom. I mean, we read about it. There's some utensils that they'd go in and they'd dig up them ashes. You remember what they'd do? They'd, they'd move that thing and they'd lift that grate and they'd go in there and they'd dig up all them ashes of that wood and all those burnt remains of those animals. And then they'd take it in one of them pans, those specific pans that they had, and one man would march that way outside the camp. And then he'd dump it out there. Oh, praise God, what a picture of Christ dealing with our sins. All the ashes of our sins. I know the devil. I know the devil likes to kick them up every now and then and throw them in our face. But listen, praise God. He's taken our sins without the camp with himself. And he has buried them away from all us. Never to be found again. And then from there, not only were the ashes taken out, but the blood was taken in. (laughs) The blood of the animal was taken in. That makes an access for us. That makes it to where we can go on with God. 
We, you listen, the joy, uh, what a joy to know that our ashes have been taken in outside and lost forever. And by His blood, we can go on to know God, to fellowship with God, to know Him, to walk with Him, to enjoy His presence, knowing our sin is dealt with. Oh, what a picture the brazen altar is of our salvation, of our redemption, of the cross of Calvary. I will ever lift my eyes to Calvary because it's there He paid the penalty of my sin. It's there He paid the debt for my sin. I must go by me. I must needs go by the way of the cross. I'll not get home if I not go if I won't go by the way of the cross. In closing, I have to admit the scene at the altar was not a pretty one. It's an ugly picture. It's an ugly picture. I think about a story Tom Hayes tells. He tells a story of how that he had a, as a young evangelist, he didn't have a whole lot of money trying to struggle to get on the road. And he had an awful tooth problem. And it was killing him. Got to where he couldn't hardly preach. And so somebody told him about an old dentist that had retired, but that he still did work out of his home for free for preachers. And so Tom made an appointment and and said, I've got to have something done. So he went down to this old dentist, dentist place and he went in there and man alive. I mean, it was nasty. The place was dusty. It was junky, magazines. The house was a mess. And, and he's thinking, what have I gotten myself into? And so he went in and saw the doctor. doctor didn't say a whole lot. He saw the problem and took care of him. And fixed the filling, drilled it out, did all the necessary things. And he said, now you should be fine with that. And go see your dentist maybe in a few weeks and, and he'll verify that. Well, Tom left there and he said, baby, I've got to, he told his wife, I've got to make another appointment. I have just met a quack. Ain't no telling what he has done to my teeth. He said, but in hindsight, I've had all kinds of teeth problems in my life. But that place that that old man fixed and that dirty dirty house and, and that, that what I thought was a quack oh son he said that, play, that has been healed that's the best tooth I have in my whole head as a matter of fact when he went to another dentist the dentist he told that dentist he said I think that guy that I went to it was a mistake and I think he was a quack and didn't know what he was doing that dentist told him he said that's the finest work I've ever seen I said, listen, you better watch what, who you call a quack. He did the best job. Listen, I know the cross is not pretty. I know it's a bloody place. I know it's an awful place. Oh, but it's the place of our redemption. It's the only place God can meet man. It's the only place God can, God can take care of our sins. It's the only place we have an opportunity to be made right with God. It's at the cross of Calvary. You see, the same is true with the cross. We must needs go by the way of the cross. You see, here in the tabernacle, God is teaching us the ABCs of redemption, the ABCs of salvation. He does that clearly in the altar, in the brazen altar at the gate of the tabernacle. Brother Tony, if you'll come, let's all stand as a, for, a moment of, of, for a moment of invitation. I'm, I'm wondering. Sorry about that. I'm wondering, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your lamb? Your lamb? 
the one that you've laid your hand upon and said, God, I give my life completely to Him. I take Him as my Savior. Do you know Him as your Lamb? Do you worship Him as your Lamb? Listen, what I preach tonight is the wellspring of joy in the Christian life. It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any more joyous than that. If God would peel back the calluses of our old cold dead hearts and see what God in love has done for us on the cross, oh, what joy ought to fill our souls, what happiness, what thrill in knowing what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. Elvis, what song are we singing? Page 342, every head bowed and every eye closed. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we have presented the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other emblem of the gospel, of the love of God, of the saving power of God than the cross of Calvary. Father, I pray you'd take every unconverted heart, that you'd shake them out over hell, that you'd shake them out over the fires of God's judgment, that they may come and confess and repent and trust in their Lamb. Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ is their Lamb. We pray that they would flee to Him, that they would cling to Him as their only life preserver, the only saving opportunity they'll have in this universe, Father. God, I pray that you would once again stir the joy of our salvation in our hearts. Oh, God, wake us up to what you have done to us because if we'll surely see the cross afresh, there will be no sacrifice in our life. There'll be no place in our life that will go hidden from you. There'll be no place in our life where we'll say, not so, Lord. There'll be no place in which we'll say in our life that we'll not give it completely for you. Oh, God, reveal the cross of Jesus Christ to us afresh. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I'm trusting to the unseen hand. We hope and pray that today's episode of the Unseen Hand podcast has been a help and blessing to you. For more information such as other podcasts, ministry helps, blog posts, previous sermons, or how to contact Brother Brown directly, just go to RonnieBrown.net. Join us next time for another message from Brother Ronnie on the Unseen Hand Podcast. Until then, may God's unseen hand gently guide you on your journey home. The Unseen Hand.